and welcome back to the Cincy Reformed Podcast. I'm Zach. I'm here with Brandon. We are co-pastors at Westside Reformed Church, a United Reformed congregation in Cincinnati, Ohio. And because we're just coming off the back of uh, Easter, and we've been thinking about, I'm sure many other Christians have been thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and also what that means about our own um, coming resurrection of the body, we thought that we would spend a little bit of time to reflect on and dip into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which really is one of those great texts that uh, nails down for us a very clear understanding, not only of Christ's resurrection, but of our bodily resurrection that is yet to come. And so we're going to begin that by kind of reading through some of these verses. We can't read through the entirety of it because it's a very, very lengthy chapter. But what we're going to do is just take turns of reading some verses, maybe making a few comments on that, just to hopefully reinforce some of the basic Christian beliefs that uh, many of you already hold. So Brandy, you want to kick us off by beginning at the top of the chapter, verses sure. 1 through 8? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, again, in chapter 15, you know, Paul, you know, throughout, throughout the book of, of, of uh, 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul is addressing various issues in, in the church. They had issues on the Lord's Supper and so forth. And so he's, he's addressing all of these things. We come to chapter 15, and he's addressing now a problem view that they're having on the resurrection. He's clarifying for the church the true nature of Christ's resurrection connected with our resurrection. Because there's some people saying, well, there is no resurrection of the dead. And so he's kind of bringing them back. And I love how he starts off in chapter 15, where he, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul is unpacking here the gospel, and this gospel is not a brand new thing that, that, that uh, is happening or, or being spoken about for the, for the first time, but this is happening in accord with Scripture, in accord with not only New Testament Scripture, which is being written during this time, but Old Testament Scripture. The gospel is embedded in, in the Old Testament. It is intrinsic to the Old Testament. The Old Testament uh, spoke about Christ, and the gospel is, is, is being proclaimed even in the Old Testament. Paul saying that Jesus did all of these things in fulfillment of the scriptures. And we see throughout the New Testament, they appeal to several Old Testament texts when they talk about, for example, the resurrection of the dead. They'll talk about Jonah being being buried uh, in the fish for uh, for three days, and then and then being spewed out. And this kind of almost this death and resurrection pattern with Jonah now being uh, fulfilled and climactically uh, seen in Christ. And also the, the the way in which the psalmist speaks about how you will not um, leave me to Sheol or leave me to death. Death, for example, in Psalm 16. Um, so, I mean, throughout there's been these glimpses, promises, patterns, and pictures of the resurrection of Christ. And Paul is saying that just intrinsic to the gospel itself, by which you are saved, 
is the resurrection of, of Christ. And so I think he starts the chapter very strong with saying that this is the very gospel. This is the good news. It's Old Testament, New Testament, fulfilled in Christ. He spends a lot of time here speaking about the resurrection. Not only the fact that he was resurrected, but all the people that his resurrected, who saw his resurrected body. 500 people saw his resurrected body. And so he wants to highlight all the, all of the various people and who saw it and uh, just to kind of vindicate and give evidence for like this really happened and many many people saw it and the resurrection is is a big deal well let's move on then to uh, verses 12 through 19 just skipping a few there to kind of hone in on the on the key verses the primary verses uh, reading from verse 12 to verse 19 now if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So as Paul is here explaining, the message of the resurrection, to Brandon's point earlier, is central to the very gospel that's preached by the apostles, and by the church. It's so central, in fact, that if that didn't happen, that it doesn't make any sense to be a Christian. Because on one hand, that means if Christ wasn't raised, you won't be raised. If you won't be raised, your faith is futile, it's vain, it's pointless. Might as well go out and live your life and enjoy it now because there's nothing in the future, according to this anti-resurrection uh, message. What Paul is doing here is he's really assuming a number of connections that will become clearer later on in this chapter. And one is this, that Christ's resurrection is connected with our own. It, what happens to Christ happens to us. What will happen to us already happened to him. And that you cannot um, separate these from one another. So the very fact of proclaiming Christ's resurrection is a proclamation of the resurrection of Christians. Those who have, quote, fallen asleep, in other words, while their soul is in glory, their body is asleep in the ground. It is waiting to be woken up, you could say, to be raised from the dead one day, just as Christ was raised from the dead. These things are intertwined and connected with one another. That's one of the assumptions being made. Another assumption that he's making here is something he spells out more uh, uh, clearly in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about the justification of the sinner. In other words, his being vindicated from the grave, his being raised out and granted glory, is the very thing that we hope for because that tells us that he bore our sins and he was righteous. When he's raised, it is that vindication of Christ that then comes to us by way of imputation. What he did for us then becomes ours. If he wasn't raised, that can't be credited to us, imputed to us. 
But since he is raised, his death, his resurrection, his righteousness becomes ours. And so we are not in our sins because Christ is raised. So these connection points are being made here by Paul, showing that the uh, that there are great consequences, uh, wonderful consequences of the resurrection of Jesus, our bodily resurrection, our forgiveness and justification. And to deny these things is to deny the very gospel itself. Can we yeah. continue on? Yeah. So verse 20 uh, has a very interesting and key uh, statement. And what Paul is doing is he's kind of expounding on what, what Zach just said. And he's giving a, an agricultural illustration uh, and so he says in verse 20, But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he goes on to talk about how Christ is the first fruits. Uh, now this is an agricultural term. If you were wondering if the harvest was ready, you might go out and see if the first fruits, the first budlings, were, were on the harvest. So you would know that the harvest will soon be here because you see the first Bundlings, the first sign that the harvest is indeed about to, about to come. And uh, again, it was a sign for farmers to, to kind of time things in terms of harvest and when they're going to harvest their crop and so on and so forth. But think about it in terms of resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first budlings. And we are the harvest. He's connecting the resurrection of Christ with our resurrection. There's not two different harvests. There's one harvest. Christ is just the, the, the first budlings, the first fruits of it. And then we are that one harvest. And so just as the first fruits show us that, yes, the harvest is coming, it, it, it is sure to come, so the first fruits here, uh, Christ being the first fruit, shows us that, no, the resurrection is coming. Uh, just as surely as Christ was raised, so surely we, the harvest, will follow. Um, <clears throat> now, I think that's a helpful, it's a helpful illustration because some people say, well, why is it taking so long? You know, why is there thousands of years? It looks like maybe there's two different harvests. But Paul is saying, no, it's still, it's, it's one harvest. God is patient, allowing more and more people, more and more um, elect sinners to come to faith in Christ. But, but his meaning is, you know, we, we will be raised as surely as the first fruits was raised. Anything else? Yes. Not on that, but I think if we, uh, this next verse, verse 26 I'm going to go to, I hope might actually help to clarify maybe a possible misunderstanding. Let me read this first. Mm. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, when we hear this verse, you could be tempted to think that, oh, the harvest is just a spiritual thing. It's just my soul being raised up, or my spirit, same thing. But when we get down here and read that the enemy is outstanding and needs to be destroyed, it's death, recognize what he's been talking about this whole chapter. It's not the death of our soul he's talking about, but the death of our bodies. And that enemy is not yet destroyed until the second coming of Jesus Christ. How is that enemy fully and finally destroyed? Well, it's by raising our bodies from the dead, he destroys that enemy that's death. And he destroys it on behalf of his people. He conquers it for himself. He already conquered it for himself. And he will conquer it on behalf of his people when that, the fullness of the harvest then comes in. So keep in mind, this harvest idea here 
is related to the conquest of death. It's about life, embodied uh, life. Verse 26, again, he must reign, Christ is reigning now, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We continue now with a few more uh, thoughts for us. Yeah, so going to I guess the problematic passage. Everybody wants to ask questions about here, chapter fifteen, verse twenty-nine. Uh, so Paul is is kind of speaking hypothetical, of saying, okay, well, well, if the dead aren't raised, there's all kind of problems. If if you're saying that 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 dead people don't don't raise again from the dead, then we're going to have a, a lot of problems here. And he's pointing out a few practical problems with this. And he makes a statement that's a little bit interesting. And from the surface of it, we're like, well, what do we do with it? And there's really no uh, practice in 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 the Bible, in the early church, uh, throughout church history. We don't see. Um, what he's talking about here in terms of the face value, in terms of how we, we, we might have a shallow read of it. But he says in verse 29, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? So he makes a statement about be, people being baptized on behalf of of the dead. And we, we've seen various cultic movements, for example, the Mormons, they really take that verse face value and they will find their family tree and they will get baptized on behalf of every member in their family tree that will somehow be accredited to them in the afterlife. And it's kind of like a vicarious baptism thing. Is that what Paul is getting at here? Um, so, you know, I do grant that it is difficult text. One, one commentator I was reading said that there were over 200 explanations they found of, of, of that text. So it tells you it's a little bit debated here. Um, Turretin, he talks about there, there's, it's been read in different ways uh, because, again, trying to, trying to debate the, the grammar here, the meaning of what's going on, what is Paul saying. Some have said, well, they're being baptized on account of the dead. They're being baptized on account of a hope concerning the dead, they're being baptized on account of him dead, and namely Jesus Christ, speaking about Christ there. So there's different ways that people have maybe taken the sense of that, of that verse. John Calvin takes Paul to mean to be baptized so as to profit the dead, not the, not the living. So in this case, Calvin is envisioning someone who is facing death, who's about to die, and before they die, they're requesting to be baptized and confess Christ uh, before they meet Christ. And so Calvin says, they are then baptized for the dead inasmuch as it could not be of any service to them in this world. And the very occasion of their asking baptism was that they despaired of life. We now see that it is not without good reason that Paul asked what they would do if there remained no hope after the dead. So in other words, Calvin is saying what, what, what Paul is saying is that, okay, you want to be baptized, you're facing death, and you want to be baptized, and you want to confess Christ, but if you're rejecting the resurrection, then why are you wanting to be baptized in the face of death? So he's asking that question, perhaps. Uh, Herman Boving said, 
the apostle here is only expressing the thought that baptism presupposes belief in the resurrection of Christ and of believers. Take away the resurrection, and baptism becomes an empty ceremony. Uh, so, uh, Bavink is saying, you know, regardless, basically, of, of, of the weeds in terms of how we understand this exact text, Paul's message is quite clear, and that is, if you take away resurrection, baptism loses any sort of um, uh, uh, power in terms of, of, of its sign. Uh, and so he's, um, again, making a practical, I think, a point here in the church. So that's kind of the problem passage here in 29. And again, people go different ways with it. But, uh, but, but I think what he's doing here is just showing the link between baptism and resurrection. If you get rid of one, you're going to kind of tweak and rewrite the other in a way. Uh, going on to another text, of verse 42, Paul um, begins to do something kind of interesting where he begins to compare and contrast spiritual and physical Adam and Christ. And so in verse 42 to uh, 49, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first a man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is a man of heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So it's interesting what Paul is doing in verses 22 to 29 Again, comparing and contrasting, the natural body, he says, is sown into the ground, perishable, dishonor, weakness. But then the spiritual body raised, he says, is imperishable, glory, power. Um, it is sown a natural, raised a spiritual. And then he begins to move then to talk about Adam. And he quotes actually from from Genesis uh, chapter 2, and he talks about the man Adam becoming, became a living being. And then he juxtaposes Adam in, in the Garden of Eden to Jesus Christ, Jesus being the life-giving spirit. Um, some theologians have pointed out, it, it's interesting how when Paul is describing and when Paul is talking about uh, bodies that die, Bodies that die that are natural bodies, he uses the same, the same phrase for Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam's pre-fall body. He still says natural body. If there is a natural, then there also is a spiritual. And so, even though Adam's pre-fall body was without sin, it still doesn't compare to Jesus Christ's resurrected body. So even, even the Garden of Eden situation before the fall 
still doesn't compare then to Christ being raised in power, life-giving spirit. And so it, it's interesting kind of uh, wetting our appetite, I think, for this future resurrection, thinking about the body that Christ had and the body that we will have as we too are raised in power, imperishable, etc. Well, that's great. I think one thing that's worth just noting in case there's any misunderstanding is when it does say spiritual body, that does not mean immaterial. I think some people read that and they assume because it says spiritual, but really the idea here is something that it's uh, Holy Spirit empowered, Holy Spirit filled. Mm -hmm. This idea of the spiritual is a heightened physical state that is heightened beyond, as Brandon mentioned, beyond the first state of Adam, even before the fall. And Jesus said, touch my hand, put your hand in my side. He was very much physical after he rose again. Exactly, exactly. So we're not returning to the garden. We're going to a place beyond the garden, better than the garden, Mm -hmm. to um, a place that is uh, spirits empowered, as Adam before the fall could never have um, even a dreamt, you could say. So let's uh, finish off the chapter here, verses 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so here, as the Paul draws this chapter to a close, he's really hitting on some of the same themes that he has uh, mentioned already. That's our body, our perishable body, our mortal body as it exists now, that must put something on. Again, it's not getting rid of the body, but it's a heightening of this body. It's, it's a resurrection and glorification of, of this body. Because flesh and blood, in other words, this natural body, cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Because by definition, it is the, that kingdom is a new creation place. It is properly speaking, the new creation. And so, if we're going to inherit that, we must also be new creation beings. Uh, resurrected and glorified. This will come at the second coming. Uh, not now, but when... Christ returns when the trumpets are sounded, when the angels go out and gather. uh, Those Christians who are still alive will uh, will meet Christ in the air, but not before those who are buried. Uh, We will meet Christ in the air with glorified and resurrected bodies and then usher usher him back to this earth to join him here on the uh, new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Clearly here, there's some mention again about sin. We've already discussed how we are uh, forgiven of our sins and how this is um, announced to us and uh, this is confirmed for us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
and his resurrection then undoes the power of sin and the law because Christ has absorbed the law's curse, fulfilled it on our behalf. And so death, sin, the devil have no power over us any longer. So it's a great encouragement for us. And I trust that the Easter service you were part of was encouragement to you uh, as well. And maybe live in light of this great, uh, glorious uh, resurrection hope, right? Brandon, any final words before we finish up? No, I mean, I, I do like how Paul kind of rounds out by talking about how, how it, that impacts how, how we live now. Um, you know, it's not just this future thing that, that'll happen one day, but no, there's real um, resurrection life, uh, even now spiritually in a sense. There's always this already not yet tension in Scripture where uh, Christ is raised and, and we are raised with Christ in a sense, but we're waiting that final uh, resurrection in the future. Uh, but yet, how do we live in light of that? And that really impacts, I think, and shapes our piety, it shapes our life. So yeah, I just love how Paul ends that chapter. And I would commend that chapter to you um, if you're uh, not doing anything this evening, pick up the Bible and read 1 Corinthians 15 and just kind of, yeah, uh, soak in, in what Paul is saying about the resurrected glory of Christ. So this is a podcast of Westside Reformed Church, and uh, you can find all of our previous podcasts at sincereformed.org. And we hope that you have a great week, and we'll see you next week.